Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast. Hello and welcome to NeuroRounds. This is round seven. I'm Dr. Chrissy Snyder calling. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, voluntary movement, the cerebellum, and the basal ganglia. So we have a lot to get to today. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. All right, so first things first, um, there are three stages in movement. So if you want to reach for something, you first have to identify the target in space, and then you have to select a plan of action. So that's very detailed. We want to know what body parts have to move and how to move them. There's also the temporal sequence of joints and tendons, um, how much force you're going to use. And then there's also the counter movement. So if you're reaching this way, what is this part of the body doing? And then once you have all that planned out, you have the actual execution of the movement, so the actual movement of the muscle fibers. So there are different parts of the brain that are responsible for these different steps. First, uh, for target localization, you have the right posterior parietal region, as Brahman's areas five and seven, highlighted here, and that's responsible for processing spatial information. Um, when you have lesions to this area, um, you can't attend to that region in space. Uh, if you can't attend to that region, then you can't locate targets in that region. Um, you can also, interestingly, uh, you can't identify objects when they're held in the hand without vision. Um, so you're kind of putting together spatial characteristics of objects. Um, one fun thing to do, I guess, when they're looking at lesions is they have patients draw a clock, and if they put all the numbers on one side, it's just kind of indicative of this uh, spatial problem of this region here. Um, also, before I move on, I just want to say another region that's important is the cingulate gyrus, which is area 24. Uh, that's part of the limbic system, uh, which is your motivation to move. So you're not going to move if you don't have motivation to move. So that's the first part. And then you identify the region of space to move to. Okay. Okay. The action plan. So this is Brahman's area 6, indicated here. It actually has two different parts. It has the supplementary motor area and the premotor area. And this has, whenever you stimulate it, um, it has complex movements. So you stimulate it and your whole arm will move. Um, also, if you're just sitting there with your eyes closed, thinking about a movement, this region will um, activate. It actually makes two plans, one for the actual movement and then one for the postural adjustments required for it. Um, if you have lesions in the SMA, then it will impair bimanual movements and also orienting your hand. So the way that your hand is shaped is going to be different based on if you're going to pick up water or a pen or something. So the SMA is what does that. Yeah, also the premotor region, if you have a lesion there, um, there's a problem in having a, a strategy. So uh, with monkeys, they have a treat and then they have a thing over it, like a glass over it. And if you don't have a lesion, then the monkeys will go under the glass to get the treat. If you do have a lesion, they'll just keep on hitting the glass and they can't make a strategy to move around the obstacle. The actual execution of the movement is taken care of by Robin's area number four. So this is the primary motor area. So this is actually responsible for uh, initiation and triggering the movement. 
So it actually, when you stimulate this, there is activation of specific muscle fibers. Uh, so this is actually moving the specific muscle fiber. Interesting thing about uh, this area is that it, there are specific neurons that code for the force used by specific fibers. You have specific um, cells are responsible for extinction and flexion. And then you have populations of neurons that code for direction of movement. So this is very precise um, uh, control of movement. What I found interesting here too is that when, you're, when you make movements, different cells are activated if you make the same movement but for different reasons. So if you move an arm because you want to reach for something versus you're angry and you're moving your arm, actually different cells will activate. Um, also in monkeys they found that if they uh, do a trained bite to a stimulus versus when they're chewing, you have different cells that are activated. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So this is kind of uh, one model of the process, the pathway that happens. So first you identify a region in space you want to move to, and then you have the uh, kind of uh, conscious idea of the plan. So I see my water there, I'm going to reach for my water. Then you have the plan for the movement sequences, and then you actual uh, execution of the specific movements that you're going to do. Um, but this is not complete because it does not include the cerebellum and the basal ganglia, which are really important for refining the motor plans. So let's dig into that. This is a cerebellum. It's a little part of the brain in the back. Uh, cerebellum means little tiny brain. Um, so what it does is basically it monitors for errors. So it takes information about the movement plan and then it's monitoring what your body's actually doing and then it's trying to make the plan and the execution match. So for example, if you pick up something and it's heavier or lighter than you thought it was gonna be, the cerebellum is gonna be the one that's adjusting the forces used to offset that. Okay, so a little anatomy here. Um, this is the cerebellum. This is, it's kind of pulled out so you can see it. This top part here is the anterior lobe. They have a, the primary fissure here. You have the posterior lobe here. And then you have the posterior lateral fissure and then the flaccular lobe. Some more anatomy here. The middle part is called the vermis. The sides are called the intermediate zone right here around the vermis. Um, that's Latin for worm, never forget it now. And then you have the lateral zones of the hemispheres here. So that's kind of the gross anatomy. You also have some functional anatomy. So you have what's called the cerebrocerebellum and that is the posterior lobe and then the lateral hemispheres. So these regions here. And this uh, cerebrocerebellum is talking to the, uh, the cerebrum. So it's kind of um, getting the initial plans for action. So it's doing that part. Uh, so again, it receives information from the cortex about the intended movements. And then it sends information about calculated motor plans out to the motor areas, uh, four, areas four and six. So inside the cerebellum, you have these deep cerebellum nuclei, and then the different regions. Um, for this cerebrocerebellum, um, it's the dentate that is important here. And again, this is responsible for movement initiation, planning, and timing. Timing will be important later. A little bit more about the cerebrocerebellar tract. Um, this is the pathway here. Again, it's on the outside. Um, it's calculating specific motor plans. It's for precise control of rapid limb movements and tasks that require fine dexterity. So think about typing here. Also really important for an, an internal clock. So it does 
motor, motor timing. So again, when you're typing, some fingers have to wait till their fingers are done. That's really important here. But also interestingly for judgment of elapsed time. So you have patients and you're asking them how much time has passed. If they have a problem with their cerebral vellum, they'll have a hard time doing that task. Yeah, so then this the pathway here. So you have the lateral zones of cerebellum, dentate, superior uh, cerebellar peduncle, thalamus, and then the motor and premotor areas. Um, lesions, again, have delays in the movement and timing. You also have tremor at the end of the movement, disorder to temporal coordination, and spatial coordination of the hands and fingers. The second kind of functional anatomy part is called the spinocerebellum. So this is a part. It's the anterior, so this lobe, also the vermis and the intermediate zones. So this is what's talking to your body. There is a spinal system, spinal cord, skeletal system. So um, as you would suspect, since it's talking to the body, we have little homunculi here. There's actually three. So you'll see for both, for all three of them, you have the head, neck, and trunk in the vermis area. Then you have the limbs in the intermediate regions. So again, this is what's talking to the spinal cord. Um, it has two, really three, um, deep cerebral nuclei. So you have in the intermediate region, which goes out to the limbs, you have the interposed nuclei, and that's uh, composed of the ebulliform and the globose nuclei. And again, it's important for limb control. And then in the vermis, you have the vestigial nuclei, and that's important for head, neck, and trunk. It receives information from the vestibular system, also visual and auditory systems, kind of helps you orient to stimuli. A lot more information about the spinocerebellar tract. Here you'll see the tract for the vermis, head, neck, and trunk. On the other side, you'll see the paths for the intermediate, which is the limbs. Um, this controls the execution of ongoing movement, uh, has feedback adjustments, so it helps you to regulate and smooth out tremor. It responds to proprioception and touch. So again, when you pick something up and it's a different size or weight than you thought it was going to be, this helps you to uh, make the adjustments. Um, it also has two different uh, pathways. as a dorsal and a ventral pathway. Um, they do slightly different things. So the dorsal is important for sensory events and information about the evolving movements. And the ventral does um, kind of it listens to inner neurons or about central commands. Uh, so slightly different um, information it's receiving. So the third different uh, functional anatomy here is the vestibulocerebellum. And this is down here in the facio-lobular lobe, um, and it receives information from the inner ear. So it is important for balance and eye movement. So again, it receives information from the inner ear down here in this lobe, and it's important for balance and eye movement. The pathway here is inner ear, medulla, nodular lobe. It also receives visual input, uh, input from the LGN. Uh, so if you're kind of off and you're feeling a little bit dizzy, you can use vision as another source of information to kind of get your balance. It governs eye, it governs eye movements and body equilibrium. Okay, digging a little bit deeper here, we're gonna go into the different layers in the cerebellum. So there are three main layers of cell bodies. You have the molecular layer, the Purkinje uh, layer, granule layer, and below that you have white matter, which is uh, myelinated axons from the neurons, but the cell bodies are all in this three. So before I get into this, I just want to remind you all that neurons are firing at a given rate. Just say they're firing at a given rate. 
what can happen is another neuron can impact the firing rate by exciting it, stimulating it, making it fire more, or inhibiting it, making it fire less. So we're going to talk about this, and also in the basal ganglia, you have more inhibition or less inhibition. When you have less inhibition, that's called disinhibition, kind of a double negative, it, the end result is that it excites. So this might be a little bit confusing, so I'll try to talk slow and work through it. Um, so there's two different uh, sources of information coming into the cerebellum. You have the climbing fibers, which are on the far side here, and they come in and they can re, um, synapse onto the deep cerebellar uh, nuclei directly, and that excites it, so that makes those neurons fire more. They also project up to the Purkinje uh, cells, and the Purkinje cells are inhibitory. So it excites this cell, which makes it produce more inhibition. So then it reduces the stimulation on the deep cerebellar nuclei. So you had this excitation and this inhibition, and it's kind of working together to control overshooting, and this is what we call neural sharpening. You also have mossy fibers that come up, and they also synapse right onto the uh, deep cerebral nu uh, nuclei. That's excitatory. They also ascend up, and then it gets into um, some networks here where they excite some cells that then in inhibit other cells. And basically, again, it's another way of kind of this balance of excitation and inhibition to make sure that the information that's coming out is exactly right, so you don't overshoot your target. So some of the uh, problems that happen with cerebral damage, um, it plays a role in conditioning. So stimulus and learning um, a certain response to stimuli. So if you have uh, trouble with your cerebellum, then you can have, it prevents the acquisition of the conditioned eye blink. Also, um, a guy named Gordon Holmes did some um, research on people who got gunshots to their cerebellum in World War I and found the following problems. Um, one is hypotonia. So you have uh, diminished resistance to passive limb movement. So basically you have low muscle tone. You also have ataxia. So you have a delay in initiating responses, errors in range and force. So you just, you don't move properly. Um, you have tremors at the end of the movement. Um, also what's interesting here is if you have damage to one side of the cerebellum, then the effect will be on that same side. That's because uh, fibers actually cross twice in the cerebellum. So it's a little bit convoluted, uh, but you actually had damage on the same side, so, which is different from damage in uh, the cerebrum. Um, if you have any um, damage to the vermis, so that very central part, you um, obviously have trouble with the trunk movements, but also speech. So you'll have slurred speech, and you'll have a kind of sing-song quality to your speech. Also interestingly, there has been research to show that the cerebellum um, is responsible for other things in, um, in addition to movement. So you have some explicit memory retrieval here, language and verbal uh, working memory, sequence learning. There's been kind of some theories about dyslexia. So again, it's a sequencing of um, speech. So you might have that problem with the cerebellum. So it's not just movement per se. Now, the basal ganglia. Any questions so far about anything we've covered? I know it's kind of a whirlwind. Okay, so the basal ganglia has a couple different components in it. You'll have the caudate, which is here, 
Um, it integrates, uh, integrates spatial information and motor behavior. Also importantly, it's uh, part of the reward system. So it helps you to select actions based on the values of the outcome. You have the pudumen, which is uh, responsible for the extent and amplitude of movement. You have the globus pallidus, uh, which is important for inhibition. Um, so this uh, helps you to smooth out movements and reduce tremor, so you're not doing the robot all the time. You have the substantia nigra, which is really important for GABA and dopaminergic pathways. Um, this is going to be really important for uh, Parkinson's disease. And then the subthalamic nucleus. So this is important for action selection and reducing impulsive choice. Um, so this is, uh, plays a role in possibly ADHD. Some differences between the basal ganglia and the cerebellum is that the cerebellum connects directly to the spinal cord, whereas the basal ganglia do not. Um, so the cerebellum kind of has a very direct influence on movements, whereas the basal ganglia kind of play a role in higher order um, parts of movement. There are um, a number of different circuits and pathways the basal ganglia is important for. So just briefly, I'll cover a few. One is the oculomotor circuit, which is important for psychotic eye movement. So those are eye jumps to where um, you're looking, as opposed to smooth pursuit movements when you're tracking something. You have the dorsolateral prefrontal circuit, which is important for memory of spatial orientation. And you have the lateral orbital frontal circuit, which is important for changing behavioral set. So if you're familiar with the Wisconsin card sorting task, where you have to do something according to some rules for a little bit, and then the rules change. So sorting by shape for a little bit, but then sorting by color. Um, that's what a behavioral set is. There are two kind of main pathways here. There's the direct pathway, the indirect pathway. Just gonna go through the, um, the pathways here. So this, the first, what happens is that the cortex releases glutamates on the striatum. So the caudate and the putamen together are called the striatum. And glutamate is excitatory, so it excites those regions. They project to the internal part of the globus pallidus, and that releases GABA, which is inhibitory. So it releases a lot of inhibition. So if you're really inhibited, the end result is actually excitatory, right? Because it's kind of a double negative. So what happens is that the thalamus then excites the cortex, and the end result of that is increased motor activity. So this is increasing the activity that you want. Okay, the indirect pathway, again, starts with glutamate, which is excitatory, going down to the striatum. And in this one, it, it projects to the external part of the globus pallidus. And then that projects down to the subthalamic nucleus. Again, there's a lot of GABA, so it's less activity. So then, or a lot of, a lot, sorry, that's wrong. So a lot of GABA is really inhibitory, so it's more activity. It goes up to the, uh, the internal part, over to the thalamus, it's excitatory. The thalamus does GABA, which is inhibitory. So it actually inhibits the cortex, so it reduces unwanted motor control, motor activity. So it's a little bit of double negatives. Essentially, the direct pathway is for increasing motor movement, and the indirect pathway is for decreasing unwanted motor activity. Um, I just wanted to mention the Nigar striatal pathway um, because it's really important for uh, Parkinson's. I don't want to go into too many details. These gray uh, arrows are just the direct and indirect pathways. 
basically what happens is that the substantia nigra projects, there's a dopamine pathway here. Some dopamine receptors are, are excitatory and some are inhibitory. So basically what happens is it just amplifies the direct and indirect pathways. Okay, so um, again, we'll talk about Parkinson's disease. It is a disease of the basal ganglia. It was discovered by James Parkinson's in 1817. Um, it's this kind of rhythmic tremor at rest. Um, you have rigid tone. You can't initiate movements. And um, you have kind of slow execution of movements. Um, that's because 80% of dopamine in the body is in the basal ganglia. And what happens is that up to 90% of these neurons are degenerated in Parkinson's. And so um, it's really damaging to the movement and you kind of, you know, uh, had these um, symptoms here. The traditional treatment was L-DOPA, it's a pill you take, and they thought that it made, helped you create more dopamine. But that treatment has been uh, not as successful and it, it might start out successful, but it doesn't stay successful. So a very interesting new uh, treatment is called deep brain stimulation. So uh, Dr. Charles Blaha was actually, uh, who I learned physiological psych from at University of Memphis, has a patent for this. Um, it's pretty interesting. So what they do is they put a little pacemaker um, under the skin and there's leads up to an electrode. And the electrode goes down into the globus pallidus and or the subthalamic nucleus. And it stimulates those nuclei to uh, release more dopamine. So when they put this in, uh, the brain surgery, the patient is awake and functioning. And so they can make sure that they're not hitting something that they don't want to hit and that they're hitting the right places. And so they'll ask them to move their arms, to say things, uh, make different movements, and that will help them kind of titrate the amount of electrical activity that they need to be um, directing to these regions. So it's very fascinating. And I do believe this is what, um, the Back to the Future guy? Uh, who's that actor? Oh. You know, that guy. <laughs> I, I think this is what he has. I'm not sure. I'll have to double check that. But, um, oh, yes, you're right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so it's very interesting um, stuff there. Okay, one other disease here, Huntington's disease, uh, discovered by George Huntington in 1872. This is extremely heritable. Um, if a parent has it, the kid has 50% chance of actually getting it. Its onsets are in the 40s and 50s, and then you usually die 15 to 20 years after it. Interestingly, most of the cases on the East Coast can be traced back to, to two immigrants from England. Um, they um, immigrated to Salem, Massachusetts in 1630. So they traced there uh, through 12 generations, and it was expressed in each and every generation. The fortunate thing is the onset is after you have kids, and so then, you know, you've already, it's already gone down to the next generation and it's, it's very devastating. Um, so if, if it's in your family now, they have you do kind of genetic tests to make sure you're making your choices wisely about whether you want to put that into the next generation. Um, it's a very uh, troubling disease. Onset is kind of absent-mindedness, irritability, depression kind of fidgety and clumsy. A mid-disease, you have chorea, which is kind of just movement um, dementia and slurred speech. Eventually, speech stops, you're confined to a wheelchair, and cognitive functions go, and then you die. And um, this is due to a loss of uh, cholinergic and gapaminergic neurons in the caudate and the putamen. And unfortunately, there's no treatments available right now. Uh, so it's 
It's a pretty devastating disease of the basal ganglia. Okay, so before we end, I just wanted to um, tie this kind of all together. So we have the cerebellum here, the basal ganglion in the middle, and they have the prefrontal cortex, and there's a very important circuit that goes through these things. And it's important for not only movement, but other kind of disorders. So uh, interestingly, ADHD is frequently tied to reduction in volume in a lot of these areas. So prefrontal cortex, the caudate, the striatum, the globus pallidus, and the cerebral vermis, so that center part of the cerebrum. You also have reduced density of dopamine receptors. So that's that uh, basal ganglia circuit there. Um, there are projections from the premotor to basal ganglia and cerebellum, which guide behavior. And they think that uh, problems with this pathway is uh, responsible for some of the hyperactivity and impulsivity. So again, I told you how there was the direct and indirect that uh, helps to reduce unwanted movement. They're thinking that that is one pathway in ADHD that isn't working properly. And also, as I mentioned before, um, you know, behavioral sequencing. So it might play a role in dyslexia um, as well. So it's not just movement. There are other um, behaviors and disorders that are important. So when we do brain maps and we see things in the cerebellum, it might be movement, uh, but it might also be other things like ADHD or dyslexia in there as well. Okay, I know that was a whirlwind, a lot of information. Um, but that is the voluntary movement, the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Rounds podcast for future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.